you should always be asking progress made progress needed, right? I mean, what progress have we made? And you should start seeing the progress made in the stories that are being told, right? What stories are being told? What the story that consumes us is the one that controls us. So you can check the narrative, what's consuming the oxygen. And if um, anecdotally, you're able to gather enough stories that say, um, you know, stories that match your values, you know, you're on the right track. But at the end of the day, Mike, you're going to see the results change because culture produces a result. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. Culture has joined the lexicon of corporate buzzwords that are widely used, ill-defined, and often simply window dressing. On this podcast, we've talked about the term with a number of guests, and it consistently comes up in the course of most episodes. And certainly anyone who's heard me speak about company values, ethics, or even strategy knows that I believe culture makes or breaks organizational success. As we continue our series of New Year's resolutions for people leaders, it seems appropriate to have another conversation around understanding and improving our organizational cultures. To that end, I'm joined today by Tony Bridwell. Tony's career includes top-level HR leadership roles in multinational companies, and today he is the Chief Talent Officer for Encompass Group, a workplace transformation consulting company. Tony is a sought-after conference speaker, university guest lecturer, consultant, and coach. He's the best-selling author of six books, the most recent of which, The Do-Over, a story about writing your new story, was released earlier this year. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that Tony is a living organ donor, which I guess beats the alternative, and serves on the board of directors for Southwest Transplant Alliance. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Tony. Well, okay, this is fun. And I, it is better than the alternative yeah. of being a living organ donor. And you can only do it once too, by the way. You can only be a living organ donor once. And you did that, uh, what? It's been a number of years since you 11, since you, 11 years 11, ago, 11, November. Yeah. yeah 11 wow. years ago, November. And, um, my good friend who was the recipient, um, is living his best life. So that's amazing. It, it is, it is pretty cool. Yeah. So on culture, let's just start with a simple one. How do you define culture? Because I think it's everybody's got different definitions, and I, I and you're you're one of the go-to gurus on it. So tell me how you define it. Uh, you and I need to redefine simple. I mean, my gosh. <laughs> uh, so you know, this I get asked this question frequently: define culture. This the simplest definition of culture is the way people think, feel, and act. Right? That is, uh, you know, that that is the simple definition. Um, there are those who have written volumes. Dr. Shine is probably the go-to person when it comes to culture. And 300 and 400 pages later, uh, you know, it took that long to really get to the bottom of it. But at the end of the day, how people think, feel, and act. And you can add layers to that, artifacts, norms, beliefs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, some people say it's just the script that people uh, you know, live by, there's so many variations, how people think, feel, and act is probably the simplest. So 
in that in in that definition, we're talking about all of our employees. Uh, or are we are we mostly concerned about how people think, feel, and act who are not management versus those who are management, or is it just a kind of a averaging of of how the general population feels? No, uh, that's the right. It's it's the right place to go with the question. It's everybody, right? And so uh, you know, it's true that culture is set at the top. The tone is set at the top. People watch what others are doing uh, and that will determine what's accepted inside an organization. So they're going to look up uh, in psychology. It's called the implicit leadership theory. People watch others to learn what's accepted uh, here. And so they do watch up, but it's everybody. And look, everybody needs to understand this. Everybody has a culture. Every organization right. has a culture. Two or more gathered together, there's a culture. <laughs> and every culture is perfectly aligned to get what it's getting today, right? Culture delivers an outcome of some kind, good or bad, right or wrong. When, but when people think, feel, and act, there's a real simple principle called the do-get principle. You do something, you get something, right? So when people think, feel, and act, there's always going to be some kind of outcome that is produced. Every culture is perfectly aligned to get what you're getting today. So if you don't like what you're getting today, a lot of people go back, Mike, and pull the lever to change the strategy, or we go into behavior modification mode. You're just doing it wrong. Do it this way, right? If you're an adult and you have teenagers, you know what I'm talking about. If you were ever a teenager, you know what I'm talking about, right? The parents come in and go, you're doing it wrong. Do it this way. And we hand out lists and we get in, caught into this behavioral modification trap. While that's a part of culture, it's not necessarily culture. And so people end up getting pushed around by culture a lot. But the old adage is true. Either you lead culture or it will clearly lead you. Yeah, that reminds me of, of, and if you've listened, if anybody who's listened to this podcast more than three or four times, they've probably heard me quote it, but John Amici's quote about uh, your culture is defined by the worst behavior tolerated. And, um, and so, you know, what kind of behavior do we incentivize? Well, think if you're going to use the think, feel and act, what kind of thinking do we incentivize and reward and what kind of, you know, feelings and, uh, and what kind of actions do we incentivize and reward in the organization? I've heard that quote before. And I, the first time I, first time I heard it, I, I had to stop and really ponder that because, uh, you know, is that necessarily true? There is truth in that quote. There is absolutely truth in that quote that in your culture, what you look, all behavior is rewarded. And, and I think that ultimately is the point. All behavior is rewarded. It all has a consequence, right? That's yeah. exactly right. And with every consequence, uh, you know, there was something that happened prior and something that happens, you know, after the consequence. And so because all behavior is rewarded, we're constantly in this moment of forming culture. A lot of people don't understand this, but culture is constantly being formed and it's constantly evolving. And so when we're rewarding the right behavior inside the organization, you tend to keep your culture um, more aligned. And for us, it always goes back to, here's a big shocker, story, right? I mean, my whole last book was about story. The book before that was about story and culture for us evolves around story. Uh, when you do the research and, you know, 
I got bored during COVID. So I decided to go back and get a doctorate in all of this uh, just because I'm just don't have enough to do. Right. So, you know, when you go back and actually look at the origins of how culture evolves and moves, it moves through story. We are, we are hardwired at a cognitive level to interpret life through story. And so it is all about the story and the story that is told and accepted and rewarded keeps getting told and accepted and rewarded. And what happens is that creates habits, right? I mean, the story that we just keep telling creates a habit. And uh, the dean of our school, uh, I mean, if he says it once, he says it 10 times during a lecture, habit always wins. Habit always wins, right? And at, you know, and what I would probably say from a cultural standpoint, instead of, you know, the worst behavior that's accepted defines culture, I would probably say whatever the habit is, habit always wins, right? The habit always, the, whatever you allow. And Stein referred to that as the norms. You know, it's what we accept as the social norm inside the organization that wins. Yep. And, and I think we've, you know, if you look around whatever organization you're in, you'll see that this is how it is. And I think that's one of the challenges uh, with mergers and acquisitions, right? It is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, we've got our habits here are very different than our habits over there in yes. the new place. And, uh, and it often doesn't matter which set of habits is even better. It's got, it's, it's more to do with uh, who's got the prevailing power coming into the organization. Well, and part of why the M&A struggles, Mike, is because, you know, we try instead of, you know, it takes longer than a hot minute to change a habit, but yet we get in and we say, okay, here's how we do it here. Shift your behavior. And we go into list making mode. Hey, welcome to the new firm. Uh, here's five behaviors you need to go out and do tomorrow. And we, we try to shift behavior, but we don't get in and we don't start working on the mindset. We, we would say, you know, story forms, how we think and feel our mindset, our mindset, how we think and feel our beliefs our values or biases drives our behavior and our behavior produces an outcome and an outcome always generates a new story. And so what happens is in M&A is that we get in and we try to modify the behavior. Hey, this is how we do it around here. And quite frankly, during onboarding, it's almost always the question that's asked. People will get everybody together. They'll build up just enough trust. Uh, they'll get just enough courage and they'll lean over to somebody and they'll say, hey, look, tell me, how does it really work around here? And what they're doing is they're asking for what's the story that's really told? What's the real narrative around here? And so if you want to shift a habit, you've got to go back to the original tape, the story that's playing in your head. And you got to figure out, is that a good one or a bad one? We say there's three stories that we're always interacting with. So if the listeners want to figure out, okay, how do I shift that habit? How do I change that? You got to look at the three stories. There's three stories we're always telling. We tell a story when we show up. We tell a story when we speak up. And we tell a story when we sync up. The show up story, pretty simple. It's the nonverbal story we tell when we enter the room, being present when we're present, right? It's screen on versus screen off. I'm not saying screen off's bad. I'm just saying screen on or screen off, no words are exchanged, but yet somebody's telling a story one way or the other. Um, there's actually some research that came out earlier this year uh, called Mood Contagion. And it says this, the person with the highest tenure or title in the room, their mood will affect everyone else in the room without any words. So this goes back to the old adage you and I have probably done at some point in our life. We get ready to go into the room. I look at you and say, hey, I'm presenting first. What kind of mood's the boss in? 
right? Or one of our kids is, you know, they would come home and say, hey, what kind of mood's dad in tonight, right? And so we tell a story by our sheer presence. We've all been in the room when someone's presenting and then all of a sudden someone starts looking at their phone. No words, no words are used, but yet that show up story tells everybody else in the room a story and you fill in the blanks, right? So we tell stories when we show up, we tell stories when we speak up. Now for you and me, words really do matter. I mean, we make our living using words all day long and Google said in 2021, we sent 389 billion email per day. That does not include text messages or instant messaging or anything like that. That's just email. That's a lot of freaking words, right? I mean, those are just typed words. And we all get too many email. We all get too many text messages. But there is a reason why our phones have 3,000 emoji options. It's because while words are important, they play a secondary role in the story. It's the tonality and the emotion of the words that are the leading character in the story. And here's what's crazy. We send a lot of written words without tonality and we leave them open to misinterpretation. We say this all the time. Any story left uninterpreted is frequently misinterpreted by the other people in the room. So the minute you have misinterpretation in the story, your culture stands the chance of wobbling. And then finally, that's the sync up story. That's a system, a process, or a policy that you sync up with that tells a story behind the scenes. And they're all, they're everywhere. Many of them are legacy stories. You know, we, you know, someone asks, well, why do we do it this way? And what's the answer? Well, we've always done it that way, right? It's, it's so it's that legacy story running behind the scenes. Everybody has their own quote unquote sync up story. Your calendar is a story. Uh, that's a system that we use and it tells a story. So as an example, if I show up in a very open, curious manner, I speak up um, in a tonality that shows um, that I'm available and I actually use words that say I have an open door policy. But yet when you sync up with my calendar, there's no white space. Well, my calendar just told you a story. And that story is, I'm really not that available. And so what happens is uh, these stories misalign and they create potential confusion inside the organization. From a psychological standpoint, some people would call that cognitive dissonance. I hear, I hear what you're saying, but I see what you're doing and they don't align, right? And so that creates confusion or what we would just simply call culture wobble. And all of a sudden things aren't quite as good as they should be. So what, what do we do? I mean, we haven't necessarily taught people how to manage culture. And so what do leaders do? They just only, they do what they know to do. And that's muscle the culture back into alignment. And they just push, you know, do it this way. Hey, that's not working. Do it like this. Hey, that's not working. Do it like this. And we get into muscle mode. And while, you know, good news, bad news, muscle mode works. That's the good news. The bad news is it works. Yeah, and, the, yeah. Bad news is it, it breaks furniture and, and dishes exactly. and, and and bruises feelings and yeah. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. So a lot of times we get pushed around by culture because we simply haven't developed our skills in managing it. It it is the thing. I'm glad you're talking about it all the time. It is the um, item to work on. It's just we talk about it, but we haven't taught people how to actually work it. And it, I think it ties in, uh, from my perspective, real closely. I, I see values as kind of the guardrails 
around your culture. And you're talking about stories. When somebody comes in our organization, we, we focus real heavily, even in, in the uh, interviewing process around uh, our values. And we tell stories about what it looks like when people live our values. And I can say, Savannah on my team did this. And, you know, that's an example of how we always act in the best interest of the client and um, and in telling those stories over and over. And so uh, if, if management finds themselves muscling into trying to, to control culture, um, maybe it's it's because they don't have the right stories, haven't thought through the right stories to tell for the kind of culture they really want. And, and, and art reinforcing and, and building, you know, giving opportunity for those, those kind of behaviors to succeed. Well, your example is, is a brilliant example. Everybody need, you need to flag that you need to post that. That is absolutely 100% the example that when you tell a story and link it to what you want, you end up painting what's referred to as just mental pictures for people to repeat, right? So, Hey, this is what it looks like to live this value. And all of a sudden, bang, now I know what it looks like. Look, people are telling stories whether we like it or not. People are always telling stories. It's are they moving us ahead, slowing us down, or holding us into place? And, you know, when leaders come to grips and um, create this awareness around the stories that I'm telling just by being in the room. Look, when I show up on time, I tell everybody a story. I respect your time. When I show up late consistently, um, I'm telling everybody a story, right, wrong, or indifferent. Nobody knows if I don't interpret that. I've told everybody in the story, everybody in the room, a story. Here's what I think about that. Oh, by the way, hanging on the wall is a value that says respect others. But yet I show up and I tell a different story with my presence. All of a sudden I've created this conflict, right? And so um, it is all about telling stories. I tell every single team, senior team that I work with, look, you might be the senior vice president of brand awareness or senior vice president of finance or CFO or whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day, you're one of the chief storytellers and you need to be aware of the stories that you're telling because people are watching. That's what's so scary. People are watching all the time. And it's not just the stories you're telling verbally. It's, it's how you behave and, and what you, you know, what you incentivize and reward and, how you treat people and, and what you allow people, how you allow others to behave, I guess, too. Yep. So there's often a disconnect in organizations between the aspirational culture, the values that we say we aspire to, you know, that, that, that you know, what we really and where we're at right now. Um, how do I figure out where I'm at right now? If, I, if I'm an organizational leader and I know things probably aren't running the way I would like them to as far as how engaged my employees are, uh, the, the stories they're telling to customers by how we treat our customers, all those things. But I really don't have, you know, what's what's my thermometer? What's the barometer of, of how I measure culture yeah. in my organization? Well, there's a lot of consultants, uh, me being one of them, that have several tools in our toolbox that can help measure culture at a lot of different levels. I'm going to give you a free um, assessment, right? Super simple to do that will get you pretty darn close to the point that when you do this, you will know, holy cow, I need to get some help or we're not that far off. I think we can probably get people back together. Um, I call it three by three 
right? Three by three plus three. It's super duper simple, right? Three questions with three answers and three definitions. That's it. Three questions with three answers and three definitions. When you do this, you will get a snapshot of what your organizational culture looks like and have a good idea where to work. I do this with all my clients. If you're a leader and you have, you could do this at a team level, you could do this at an organizational level. I would recommend doing it at a team or a sample level. So in other words, if you have a hundred people in your organization, send it to 10 and see what happens, right? Here's the three questions. Question number one, what are the three results we need to achieve this year? Now, that could be four results, but if it's 20 results, you got a problem. So what are the top three results we need to achieve this year, right? Number one, right off the bat. That tells me if I ask 10 people this and I get 10 wildly different answers, immediately I know I have an alignment challenge inside my organizational culture, number one, because culture delivers results. We exist to deliver a result. If you don't know that, it's pretty, it, you got a problem. So what's the three top results that we need to achieve this year? Question number one. Question number two, what three words describe us today? Just three words. Question number three, what three words should describe us in three years or less? These two questions are going to identify your gaps on what's hanging on the wall, your values, where you think you are and where you need to be. Because if hanging on the wall is innovation, but the three words, and by the way, you can take these three words, turn them into a word cloud and immediately see. I did this with a client. One of it hanging on the wall was innovation. Um, and one of the big gigantic three words was unfocused. Now it's really tough to be innovated if you're unfocused. One of the three words that they wanted to describe them in three years or, or less, innovative. So immediately I see a gap in how people identify who we are today and who, and who we aspire to be. So three results, what are the top three results we need to be achieving this year? Three words that describe us today, three words that should describe us in three years or less. Those are your three questions and three answers. Now you need three definitions. This is going to help you identify some important components. Definition number one, please define in one sentence the word accountability. Now, this is important uh, because you need people to be accountable, but there's two viewpoints on the word accountability. One is internal and one is external. You need to know where your group is landing. The external definition, Webster kind of messed this up a little bit. The external definition and how Webster defines accountability is something happens after the fact. I'm going to hold you accountable after the fact. It's to give account after something has happened. That's so it's a report card. It is the report card. And you hear okay. people say this all the time. Um, I had somebody during an interview, this is an interview question I ask everybody, define accountability. And it's not that I need you to get the sentence right. I just need to know if you're internal or external locus focused, right? Because external, I had this person sit across the table from me and I said, define accountability. And he said, uh, Mr. Bridwell, at the end of the day, I just want to know when something goes wrong, whose throat to choke. And, and for him, that was accountability. It was all about holding other people 
accountable for what needed to happen. Now, that external focus of accountability will tend to get people focused on what's outside their control. They'll externalize accountability. It's not me, it's someone else. The internal focus, and this is what's really good, most people will answer this way, is accountability, well, if it's going to be, it's up to me. I do what I say, I say what I do, um, and I'm going to be accountable to deliver. To deliver. Sometimes people would say dependable, or I own that, or whatever the case may be. This happens in a lot of organizations. I ask this question um, uh, with every leadership team. Give me a one-word definition. People say ownership, responsibility, dependability. And then I'll ask, when do we normally hear the word used around here? And people say, well, after something bad has happened. That creates cultural confusion because the boss is going to stand up at the first year and say, hey, look, this year is going to be tough. We've got a pending recession, but yet the board has asked us to grow by 6% um, in all of our areas and all of our indicators. We need to you know, reduce our turnover. We need to grow our top line. We need to strengthen our bottom line, blah, blah, blah. And I need everybody to be accountable. Are you with me? And everybody goes, yes. And then, you know, a hundred people leave the room and they play a hundred different definitions of what it means to be accountable. You got a cultural problem. So first definition, define accountability. I just need to know where the bulk of the people are. Are they internal or are they external? Second question, define culture. Now this is going to tell me, is culture ping pong tables, ice cream, and flip-flops? Or is culture actually something a little more definable around here? That tells, that tells an outside consultant or an advisor or even a, a senior team how much work needs to be done foundationally before you can take the last step. And then the last question is define ethics. This one's important. I know from some of my dissertation research that when you ask somebody to define the word ethic, 90% of the time they're going to give you this answer, doing what's right or doing the right thing. It's one of those two. So the actual question that you want to ask is define right. Right. Because if someone says ethics is, you know, to be ethical or to find ethics is to do the right thing. Oh, I love that answer. Thank you for that answer. Help me out. Unpack that one step further. Define right. And it is fascinating what you'll learn. What this teaches us, Mike, though, is the decision framework that people inside the organizational culture use uh, to move and navigate through their day. For example, if and this is this has happened. Well, this is an example from one of our clients. Um, I asked uh, the whole leadership team to find what's right, and they all said doing what's right. And I and I said define that. And half the group said uh, do no harm for our shareholders. The other half said do no harm to our stakeholders. Now those are two completely different groups. But from a decision-making matrix, can you see how that may be at odds? If half the group is, is saying, well, we can't do any harm to the shareholders, but the other half says, no, 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 it's the stakeholders. You've got people in throughout the organization using different filters to make decisions inside your culture. Three by three plus three, you, you take this, you get this back, it's super simple. You can do it in a survey monkey, you could do it live, you could do it, I always recommend doing it anonymously. You will learn as a leader really quick. Do I have a gap? Um, is this thing falling off a cliff? Um, do I need some tweaking? Uh, but you can get really close really fast 
to, are you aspirational or are you on the journey or are you guys going backwards? And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. And that's how most people think about us, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. But there are other ways we help our clients with people issues. For instance, as you wrap up your financials, we can help you verify the accuracy of all your taxpayer IDs for both employees and non-employees before you prepare and submit your W-2s and 1099s. Also, clients sometimes ask for our help in locating former employees to whom the company still has retirement or 401k fiduciary responsibilities. Often, those people leave the company, move away, and can't be found when needed. We can usually find them. So whatever the situation, we can often help our clients in unexpected ways. You just need to reach out to us. We're here to help at imperativeinfo.com. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for an hour of recertification credit. I told Tony it would be a 30-minute episode, and we filled an hour. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 75 and enter the keyword culture. That's C-U-L-T-U-R-E. And now back to my conversation with Tony Bridwell. So account, uh, I want to go through those a little bit more. Uh, accountability, uh, certainly it's got, the, it's got the, the internal, you know, it's my responsibility to do what I say I'm going to do and all of that. But I, at least in our organizations, we talk about it. There's also the responsibility to hold one another accountable and and for my team, my senior team to hold me accountable to say, OK, you said, you you know, this was the commitment you're you know, you were going to do this. And where is it at? Or, you know, um, you know, we miss, you know, you missed the mark here or whatever it is. Or, hey, you, you did exactly what you, you said you were going to do. So is that where you. You know, how, how do you define accountability? If, if, if somebody was going to ask you that, well, what would your definition be? Personal choice to rise above my circumstances and focus on what I can control, taking ownership for my outcomes. That's perfect. Yeah. It's almost as if I've said that before. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. As, but yeah, the, the, the personal, say it again, the personal responsibility the to per rise above. The personal choice to rise above uh -huh. my circumstances, focusing on what I can control, taking ownership for my results. That's nice. Or my outcome, so, however you want to say it, results yeah. or outcomes. Right. So you're you're not you're not incorrect in saying that we should be able to hold others accountable. But I would say yes and. And what I would say to that is if I'm not really good at personal accountability, my ability to create external accountability is going to be more sharp edged than normal, right? So um, we typically work on psychological safety and EQ uh, skills before we ever say, okay, now go hold someone accountable, right? Because what will happen is if I work on personal accountability first, the need for me to be holding other people accountable is going to dramatically drop because personal accountability says that I'm going to rise above my circumstances, focus on what's inside my control, taking ownership for my outcomes. You know, if I have more people doing that, I have less need to come in and say, Mike, why, why are you not delivering? Now, to your point, holding others accountable, um, often that just requires 
appropriate expectations to be set because you know the need to hold other people accountable is often to what end to make sure that something happens and frequently when you go and look um, as to why something doesn't happen the chances are super high that the expectation for what needed to occur was not appropriately established so we have a process that we go through called ready set go that allows people to establish expectations that naturally creates two-way accountability right because they're agreed upon they're aligned around they're they're established um, up front and so that natural occurring two-way accountability is something that you and i would agree upon ahead of time so it's just not me hovering over you going you get it done you get it done you get it done right right and that's really some of the big difference so it's a yes and answer, right? Mm -hmm. We need to be personally accountable first. And along that journey, we need to understand how psychological safety plays out through the organization. And I need to have a high level of EQ because if both of those are low, oh man, accountability becomes a nail gun, right? And everybody's a two by four that needs to be nailed, right? And so um, there's some work that culturally speaking, developmentally speaking, we need uh, to make sure that our people can can actually do. That's why I'm on this, uh, my big drum beat right now is, and look, I am guilty. I am a recovering chief people officer, so I am a recovering HR dude. Um, but it seems like I spend a lot of time with HR people uh, right now. I'm not a big fan of the word HR. I'm sorry, I know it's good morning HR, but I, I, th I think that we, we have trans made HR so transactional that we've gotten away from the people business. Um, and I know it's semantics, but uh, you know, part of good morning, good morning, people in culture just didn't quite, quite roll just, off the tongue. It, right? doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't roll off the tongue. And so I totally get it. And, and look, um, I have been guilty of this. We spend a lot of time developing leaders and what I have been uh, learning over the last, several years, and I wrote a whole chapter in my new book on this, is that we are leaders and followers both. I mean, we are constantly leading and following. And, you know, in our minds, we think they're mutually exclusive, but they're really two sides of the same coin. And so what happens is we've had this linear process of developing people from the beginning of time, right? You're an individual contributor and we're going to work with you and you show some promise my gosh, I'm going to give you a couple people to quote unquote manage and lead. And so now all of a sudden you've gone from being an individual contributor to quote unquote a leader. And in our minds, for some reason, we think it's okay to leave the follower behind. Now I am a leader and we pour billions and billions and billions of dollars in developing leaders. And while developing leaders is not bad, it's just incomplete because it never at any point in time do we ever leave being followers. Because as a, as, a, as a frontline supervisor, we cycle in and out of this leader follower mode so quickly, right? I could be sitting in one meeting and with one question, I'm the leader, and the very next question, I'm the follower. And if I don't know how to cycle in and out appropriately, I can strip some gears. The cycle speed, admittedly slows as I rise through the organization, but it never ever goes away. 
And what happens is, is we spend all this time developing good leaders, but we allow the follower inside of us to atrophy. And that's a problem. It's, it's, it's becoming, it's, it's becoming, um, a, a major problem. And most toxic leaders, I refer to them as the brilliant jerk or the toxic genius. If you go back and study them really closely, they have allowed a key followership ability to atrophy and the dark shadowy side of leadership has sprung up. When you're talking about followership, I guess the, that's the ability, you know, there, I think that probably requires a certain amount of self-awareness that certainly some leaders lack and, and an inability to uh, survey the landscape and understand what's really going on around them. But how do you really, how do you define followership then? If that's the term you use, I, you know, but yeah. Yeah, it is. It is followership. And, you know, you could do this and it's kind of interesting. If you type in leadership in the Google search bar, you're going to get like three commas or four commas, right? It's going to be like a hundred quadrillion. Type in the word followership. You may get a red squiggly line under the word um, and probably only, you know, you know, 10 million hits or something like that because it just hasn't been talked about as much as it should. I asked a group of business owners in Seattle a couple months ago, when I say the word followership, what words define that? The very first response, Mike, someone said, um, a mindless sheep that does what they're told. All the air just like sucked out of my lungs, right? Because if that's our thought of followership, then the problem is, is we see them as mutually exclusive, either you're leading or following. It couldn't be any further from the truth. A good follower is someone who is an independent critical thinker. They have a passion for the mission and they can connect at a high level to the purpose of the organization. Those are, those are the three big ones. There's a couple of drop down buckets underneath that, but those are the three big gigantic. Now someone could come back and say, well, that describes a good leader. Yeah, it, it does. But when you're in follower mode, um, meaning that you're not out front, um, how are you sitting in that seat? And, you know, am I an independent critical thinker or, or am I just a mindless drone? And the problem is, is that if I get too many mindless drones in follower mode, um, I, I have a real challenge. I'm not leveraging my culture at its fullest. Right. And so we've got to be good at both. Um, you know, what's interesting is some of the research right now says there's a term called implicit leadership theory, which is a theory that says we actually learn what it means to be a leader by watching other leaders. Um, and so there's some interesting research that would suggest that when I watch you as a leader, I'm not just watching your quote unquote, tick the box leadership skills and ability, but I'm also watching how well you follow. And when you're not a good follower, um, you slip into the shadowy side of what's referred to as dark leadership or the dark side of leadership. And, uh, you know, some social scientists would call it the dark triad, right? Machiavellianism, high manipulator, narcissism, um, high on myself and no one else. And then, you know, subclinical sociopathy, lack of empathy for other people around. Right. So, you know, it's the super hard chargers, no empathy, but I can manipulate a room pretty quickly. 
Just really low EQ. Yeah. No, low EQ would be awesome. I would yeah. say no EQ, right? Negative. Okay. Yeah, almost a almost a negative on the scale. And so I'm just I have no ability to be the follower because my narcissism is off the scale. It's all about me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, in, interestingly, I'm on this drumbeat from an HR standpoint that um, it needs to be blended how we develop people. We need to, yes, develop them as leaders, but we cannot leave behind developing them as good followers. That, uh, that business owner that, that made that comment about mindless drones shows Probably, you know, I, I would expect because I'm a member of Entrepreneurs Organization. I know a lot of uh, very successful business owners all over the country and successful through different means and not always the means that I would be comfortable going through. But um, that kind of contempt for your employees, uh, you know, if, you know, to, to you, you know, that that's, you know, and that's probably what that guy's hiring for, right? I mean, it's what he's looking for. Somebody who's not going to question the status quo. Somebody who's going to give him exactly what he asks for. But the, what danger does that put into an organization, though, if you've got a whole bunch of people who are running your operation, who are, who are mindless drones, who are tab A and slot A, and when something is out of tolerance or something's just not right, or there's a tremendous opportunity to, to do something different and, and improve, they don't do it because they're just mindless drones. Uh, I think that's, that's a culture that would just be, just be murder on, 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 on a company and on shareholders. A hundred percent, because that is the culture. That's the story. So if the story is, I see you as a mindless drone, then your belief is, why do I need to bother to think? Which, by the way, we can thank Dr. Frederick Taylor uh, for this. A uh, hundred years ago-ish, uh, he wrote one of the most influential management books on the planet, The Scientific Approach to Management. And uh, Dr. Taylor was brilliant. He was able to time study how people did what they did um, and improved productivity uh, throughout the world. So hands down, um, you got to give the guy credit where credit is due. It's one of the first references uh, that I can find to the actual term human resources as about a hundred years ago. And Dr. Taylor said that basically we worked in a, um, my words, not his caste system. Um, but his words is that there's thinkers and there's doers that management should do the thinking and laborers should just do the doing. And that when management correctly guided the human resources, we had high productivity. And so management's whole role was to be as efficient as possible and tell the doers how to do. And he referred to them as human resources. And so it created this artificial caste system of hierarchy that I think and you do. Now, granted, it was 100 years ago. Some of that has still stayed into our system of thinking to some degree that, look, I'm the one here doing all the thinking. You're the one there doing all the doing. And, you know, when, when those two things get lined up, we're going to be really, really good. So if our cultures, if, if there's a, a disparity between 
you know, this year, you know, our current position and where we say we want to be as an organization three years. And we see that gap. How does one measure your progress towards improving that? Do you just do the, the three by three plus three again and again, or, or what does that look like? Yeah, you could do, you could, you could do pulse uh, and mm -hmm. check in. Matter of fact, every organization should be checking in on a feedback uh, on a regular feedback loop to see progress. You should always be asking progress made progress needed, right? I mean, what progress have we made? And you should start seeing the progress made in the stories that are being told right? What stories are being told? What the story that consumes us is the one that controls us. So you can check the narrative, what's consuming the oxygen. And if um, anecdotally, you're able to gather enough stories that say, um, you know, stories that match your values, you know, you're on the right track. But at the end of the day, Mike, you're going to see the results change because culture produces a result, good or bad, right? And so if you got everybody aligned around three key results or you know, look, I'm going to give you, you could go four, right? Because, you know, our brains system one, system two, you know, our brains can handle three to four items really super quick and sharp. You get much past that. You're going to lose people. So, you know, you're going to start to see beyond awareness, you're going to start to see alignment and you're going to start seeing movement in the right direction toward the results that are meaningful to the organization. You're going to see that it's going to show up in the results. And then you pulse people to check on the stories. Are the stories getting aligned? You know, what stories are they telling now? Um, and you'll see that what three words describe us this week. And, uh, you know, one of the ways I like to check in is just say, Hey, based on our journey this week, where are you? One to 10. You know, if people come back and say, oh, man, I'm a seven. I know what's hanging up on the wall, but man, up against that, I'm a seven. I appreciate you sharing the feedback. What would it take to get you to an eight? What would it take? And I'm not going to be in Pollyanna and say, you got to go to a 10 immediately. But what would it take to get you to an eight? And then they're going to come back and say, you know, I, I, I just need my boss to be more authentic. Well, that's a show up story. That's a show up story. That's an issue. And so we've, we've got to work on that. It's usually one of the three stories that's out of a line. You get them aligned and you're going to start, you're going to start feeling progress. So we see on social media and, uh, you know, TikTok lately, uh, but these stories where, you know, frontline managers or especially in, re, you know, in the re retail and hospitality areas, uh, which I know you've spent some time in, um, where that frontline manager jumps the rails right and uh we've seen stories you know olive garden just you know fired a, a a restaurant manager i think for for uh for some you know a post that or a, a letter she wrote to all her employees you know criticizing uh when they have to call in sick and all you know it's ridiculous stuff but even though a you know the larger the organization i imagine the easier it is for them to have generally a great culture, but then a pocket someplace, a department, uh, a storefront or whatever, where, uh, you've got, you know, a, uh, a manager is just cowboying, cowboying it and just doing their thing. How do you, how do you make sure that what you're setting up as your culture and what you're actively trying to implement is really getting filtered down to that frontline employee, uh, so that they're really experiencing that? It's a great question. And the bigger the organization, scalability is always a challenge. 
I, I, I put a maxim in one of my books that I wrote uh, two books ago, Saturday Morning Tea, um, because I think it's probably one that we need to be telling ourselves every single day. And that is this, never assume that everybody knows what I know at the level that I know. We get complacent in uh, our um, storytelling and in our um, leading a team, we get complacent in doing that, thinking to ourselves, well, I've told them this before, so therefore they know, and we end up taking our foot off the pedal, and then all of a sudden we get general managers or frontline supervisors kind of going off the rail because we took our eye off the ball for a second. Because in our mind, it's like, well, I was just there, and I just told them, and I had a leader tell me one time, Tony, why do I have to keep telling this story? I tell this story 50 times a day. And I had to remind this particular leader, actually, you're not. You're only telling the story one time to 50 different people, and there's a difference. There's a difference. And so just because, you know, at a leader level, we may think that we're talking about it enough, we're not talking about it enough. And what happens is, as we go down into the organization, you get these... Um, you know, bad actors that have a bad day um, because we've taken our foot off of the quote unquote storytelling gas. And look, if in a re in the restaurant business, let's just say there is a regional director, an area director and a general manager. Let's just give it that simple hierarchy. Well, if the regional director takes his gas off of talking about and telling stories to the area director, then the moment they do that, that area director now believes what? It's okay not to talk about this anymore. Right, this isn't important. That's right. exactly right. And then they take their gas off of having that conversation at the front line, which is the highest touch point. And so it trickles, it trickles down, and then all of a sudden you get players that kind of get out of line. We're all going to have bad days, right? We're all going to have bad days. And it's minimizing those bad days as much as we possibly can. But never assume that everybody knows what I know at the level I know. Always be telling the stories as deep and far as we possibly can. Look, we learn, we learn 5% of what we gather as quote unquote knowledge comes in the classroom. 70% comes by hanging out with each other and watching what people do. You got to get in, you got to watch, you got to learn, you got to be there, you got to tell the stories. And you just, and I would love personally to, climb into that organization and just do a little deep dive and find out how often leaders are in there. Um, and also, you know, Hey, look, let's just pull the thread on that just a little bit. Um, we got to a point because of the quote unquote great resignation that we started hiring people that in 2017 or 2018, we might not have because from a, right. um, warm bodies, right? Exactly. Yeah. Because from a personality style, they might not have necessarily been good for our culture. Um, so part of that is we're going to have to get back to, uh, better assessing who, and I'm not a big fan of saying fits our culture, but I, I would, I think what I would rather say is someone who can breathe well in our ethos, right? Because, um, you know, if respect for other people is part of who our ethos is part of our culture, but yet I'm hardwired maybe not to do that so much. I'm just not going to breathe well here, right? right? It's just not going to feel comfortable here. 
And so, and, and, and that's not a, a hit on no. necessarily on the organization or on that individual, Correct. right? Correct. That's, and I think that's, that's, I, I think I see a lot of employers doing cultural fit wrong. Yes. Uh, and judging the wrong things. Correct. And, you know, the, the old, would I have a beer with them? Uh, that's not a culture fit. That's just lo you looking for a friend at work right. rather than somebody who's competent to do the job and, and who will operate well in our environment. Yeah. And so, you know, there's probably three lenses that we should. And I realize that there's a sense of urgency that it's like, well, I don't have enough bodies to be that particular, but you know, you should probably look through a lens of competency. Can they get close to doing, or can I teach them to do what I need them to do? Um, Culture certainly is one, and I agree with you, Mike. I, I, you know, I think a lot of people want to get culture fit right. I think it's yes and, um, and that, like I just explained, I just need to make sure you can, um, that the chemistry is such that you can breathe in our environment and feel good about that. And then last one, and this is one that we don't talk about much, but I think it's important, and I, and it's character, and it's three C's, right? And so you know, competency, chemistry, or culture, however you want to call that, and then character. And um, I, I don't know that we often, you know, look at that. Um, it's interesting, you know, five years ago, I went, on a, I went on a search to find who had the best character assessment. Uh, I had six of the top assessment companies in the country say, well, define character and I'll giving assessment. It kind of broke my heart just a little bit. Um, there is some good work out there. Dr. Fred Keel probably has some of the best work on character um, in the marketplace. There are a lot of people that do good work on that. Um, but Dr. Keel would say that character has four pil pillars. Um, you know, obviously integrity, um, you know, that, that moral straightness. Um, Accountability or responsibility. I believe Dr. Keel uses the word responsibility there. Um, and then the other two words would, would be kind of surprising and I'm a big fan and that is compassion and forgiveness. You know, do I have a level of compassion or empathy, uh, for other humans? Uh, and, uh, you know, can I readily forgive? I think corporate unforgiveness is probably one of the biggest challenges in many cultures right now. You, you know, we quote unquote, hold grudges. Um, and that just, it creates two prisons in my world, right? One for me and one for the other person, because it limits my ability to connect and it live in, limits the other person's ability to really be innovative because that tells them a story, right? And so, but that's a whole nother podcast. We could have a whole nother podcast yeah. just on that. Well, and, and one thought came to mind is I've had the conversations with, with managers who, you know, the employee definitely broke the rules, stepped outside of what, you know, what they should have done. It was inappropriate. Maybe, you know, maybe it was worthy of terminating. But if the manager's not willing to give it up, if the manager's not willing to let that thing go, then they need to terminate that employee or they need to quit. Well, yeah. I mean, it's one of those two things, right? Yeah. Because otherwise you're just going to be picking a scab for the next three years and nobody's going to be happy. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. One last thing you you're talking about, how often do I have to tell this story? And I think the other side of that is just the, the reinforcing to that person that, that when I tell a story, it, other people may hear it and respond to it, but it's, it's reinforcing it to me and how I behave. And it, it makes sure, and it helps keep an alignment 
how my behaviors are, that my behaviors when everybody else, you know, because the biggest story we tell are not the words we tell, it's how we behave and treat other people and how they see us operating in the world. And so if I'm telling that story over and over again, I'm reinforcing to myself, even if I don't mean to, uh, unless I've got a high, high tolerance for uh, hypocrisy, that you know, this is who I this is who I am, and this is who I aspire to be, and I think that's that's really key for all of us in in in, in telling those internal stories and making sure that we're reminding ourselves consistently of who we are. Correct. Hey, I've taken way more of your time than I, I told you I was, and so I'm out of integrity. Um, but I, I sure appreciate you taking uh, taking the time to talk with us today. Well, Tony. this has filled my cup. I thank you for but thank you for letting me hang out with you. I enjoyed it. And thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact information for our guest at goodmorninghr.com or at Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I hope you have a great holiday, and we'll be back next week. Until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.